The Brandon Peters Show may contain explicit language and detailed plot points. For more information on the show, stay tuned to the end of the episode. Again to the Brandon Peters show as we are marching toward in our final month here of music video installments of the summer of 93 at 30. It's the summer of 93 at 30. And back here from the Saturday evening post on a Friday, it's Troy Bramfield. One day early. One day early. All right. Uh, the movies this week, Troy, that we discussed on Monday are That Night, which is a uh, like a coming of age film with uh, Juliette Lewis, C. Thomas Howell, and a very young Eliza Dushku uh, cameo appearance by Katherine Heigl. Um, she's actually in two movies this summer as a little kid. Uh, My Boyfriend's Back, The Fugitive, and The Meteor Man. Quick thoughts on all four of those. Never seen That Night. Meteor Man is a better idea than it sometimes gets credit for. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, my boyfriend's back. I remember it primarily because, you know, zombie stuff, but also Tracy Lynn slash Lind from Fright Night 2. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And uh, but the the real winner of that pack is obviously The Fugitive, which, uh, you know, hell of an action movie. <laughs> Probably the best. I mean, there's Jurassic Park in this summer, but Fugitive might be the best movie. I don't know. Jurassic Park's a weird one because I'm kind of like Aaron Newworth on it with it, where he says it's the best movie that's not one of my favorite movies. Like, oh, it's, yeah. okay. I, I I get what you're saying with that. Yeah, yeah. But the future yeah, is Park rock is, solid. Yeah, Jurassic Park is a bit of a weird one because you know there there are things about Jurassic Park that are unassailably great. Yeah, and revolutionary and whatnot, but it's not necessarily one I like go back to much i mean i I watched it like a couple of times with the kids when the new one started Yeah, like it's a movie where you're excited to show your kids it because you were excited for it back then but you're never like top 10 of all time you know you're never it's yeah now if you're doing top dinosaur movies of all time it might fall (laughs) yeah but um but i find the the fugitive to be kind of an eminently rewatchable film Mm -hmm. you know there's just uh as far as you know something you can drop in on if it's on TV or whatnot, but um, a lot of great set pieces to it from the train to the dam to a third build, like Julianne yeah. Moore, who's in it for like four minutes. <laughs> wasn't the, wasn't the thing with Julianne Moore, she was supposed to have like a more developed role, but they didn't want anything approaching that might be a romantic. Yeah. Since yeah. I yeah. think that's what it was. Yeah. But yeah, Julianne Moore is weirdly in it for just a few minutes, but uh and 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 the great Andreas Katsulas from Babylon Five, mm, yes, is the one-armed man. Yes, um, and I don't remember the names of the actors who play the two Chicago cops, but I have rarely hated t- uh, TV or movie cops more than those two assholes. Oh gosh, <laughs> <laughs> the, 
True, true. Oh yeah. No, that movie, yeah, it's good. It's it's a good spin on taking like, you know, we talk about IPs being all the things, but like 90s had a thing where like we're going to make those old TV shows into hit blockbuster movies and this is the probably the best of it all. Like Yeah. Yeah. You've got the the, the top-notch ones, you know, Adam's Family, this and Mission Impossible. Yeah, oh, Mission yeah, I forgot Mission Impossible. Yeah, but it, but they're they're a sequence, right? Adam's mm-hmm. Family is first and then this and then Mission Impossible and I I dare say that it is the fact that Adam's family worked first, you know, might have opened the door for some of the others. They probably yeah. developed at similar periods of time. You also get like Flintstones and stuff too. So yeah. Yeah. So it doesn't always work, but yeah. <laughs> Beverly Hillbillies, there, there, there's a lot. I mean, there, there's a, that would be an interesting mm-hmm. thing to look at is the, the nineties IP mining of classic TV. Yeah. Yeah. Like, night the movie, a car 54. <laughs> where are you? That yeah. got turned into a movie. Like, yeah, there's a lot of, a lot of ones that that they took the swing. Like, they didn't redo it on TV. They literally just made they made a movie of it, and they weren't even thinking sequels back then. They were just like, let's just make a good movie out of this, this IP, and then yeah. it was really did really well. A sequel happened, and uh, you know, Fugitive got a sequel. Um, it, and we should probably mention this is the movie that that legitimately makes Tommy Lee Jones, who was already a good established actor, oh yeah, star. You know, because mm-hmm. he he's the male lead in Coal Miner's Daughter. Right, years before this, he's in freaking Love Story. Oh, he's in Rolling Thunder. Um, yeah, he has like a bit of a, yeah, like a smaller part in big things, but like having this like B movie career too. And then he, uh, the director is Andrew Davies, uh, who does the fugitive, but he'd worked with him. He did under siege with him. Yeah. And back. So he was, he was climbing. And then this one just, this is just a fun part. This is a scene stealer part. This is like, yeah, this is, I don't know that this part gets nominated for an Oscar nowadays, but this was the type of stuff back then that, in a blockbuster, which Fugitive was up for Best Picture too, I should we should mention. Yeah, well, hell, two two of his scenes are critical moments in the trailer: the right? hard target search of every. I out- don't out- care, out- and I don't care. Yeah, yeah. big trailer moments. Yeah, I mean, he just shows up, and you're like, "All right," like <laughs> it's just boom. So those great walls, and he would he would, this would these kind of movies would be his bread and butter throughout because he'd have. Uh, would, like him and Morgan Freeman. Like if you couldn't get Tommy Lee Jones, you got Morgan Freeman. You these little <laughs> adult thriller um because he had like double jeopardy. Um yeah. was another one of his. Um he got two face, sadly, didn't know what he was doing. Yeah. Um decided to compete with Jim Carrey. Oh, but... we did get that um great quote that story that Jim Carrey tells there uh Tommy Lee Jones tells him he cannot sanction his buffoonery. Uh, <laughs> People on the internet, look that up. It's delightful. It's a great. Oh my gosh, Jim Carrey story. Oh yeah, so, so good stuff in terms of that for sure. Yeah. Um. So today we're here to discuss Runaway Train. It's the third and final single from Soul Asylum's sixth studio album, Grave Dancers Union. An album that peaked at number 11 on the Billboard 200, went two times platinum. The, self, the song itself went two times platinum as well. Uh, landed number five on the Billboard Hot 100. Uh, bet, did better uh, on the mainstream charts. Uh, number two and number three. Or no, it, well, I wrote mainstream twice. It did number two on the mainstream. Uh, and then number, th- well, I think it did number three on the mainstream. It did like 
rock charts number two yeah. or something like that. Um, it won a Grammy for best rock song, beating out Aerosmith's Crying and Living on the Edge. Lenny Kravitz, Are You Gonna Go Away Away? And Meatloaf's I Do Anything for Love, parentheses, but I won't do that. Um, so, uh, Troy, you know a lot more about Soul Asylum than me. So where are they at at this time and uh, this song? Okay, let, let me uh, throw a personal aside. Um, first Soul Asylum record I got was the one that precedes this called And the Horse They Rode In On, <laughs> which um, I had heard part of from someone else. I got it from a, uh, the, a record store cutout bin for a couple of bucks because I knew about it. They had uh, previously had several singles before this. Uh, Soul Asylum is a Minneapolis band that was contemporary of uh, one side of town was the Paisley Park side where you had Prince and the Revolution, Morris Day and the Time, Vanity, you know, the different groups, the family, et cetera, associated with Prince. The other side was the Replacements, Husker Du, and Soul Asylum. They were all coming up at the same time. And the actually the two uh, music scenes would cross paths at a... Uh, place called the avenue and the avenue uh annex <laughs> so sometimes you might have at some point in the 80s uh gone in and found uh prince and the replacements playing different slots at different parts of the same building which is a crazy ass thing to think about <laughs> so you know solo Simon had made a few records at this point um their song sometime to return was on the first MTV 120 minutes, never mind the mainstream compilation, where they were compiling uh songs from bands that they were showing on 120 minutes on MTV mm. hadn't broken through yet. So they're on that first edition of this with like Robin Hitchcock and Mission UK and other acts. And they were being played on 120 minutes on MTV, which I now realized uh, for context, kids, when they <laughs> played music videos um in the late 80s, they had a spate of uh, devoting shows to specific genres, Headbangers Ball for metal, Yo MTV Raps for hip hop, and mm-hmm. then 120 Minutes. Also, there'd been a show briefly called MTV Postmodern. 120 Minutes ran late night Sunday nights and featured alternative acts. And this was pre Nirvana. So, uh, right. Soul Asylum had existed for a few years. In the aftermath of Nirvana, there were a lot of bands that either were on major labels or had gotten signed to major labels and now had money behind them. I think that Soul Sign might have been Warner, but um, Grave Dancers Union was their first major label release after, you know, Nirvana and the Seattle explosion. So um, the lead single was Somebody to Shove, which is a great song. It had gotten lots of promotion and they had a song called Black Gold. It was also more of a rock and song. This was the ballad song. <laughs> and it has, you know, I think it was it was Trent Reznor once that was referring to certain music videos. Uh, but Runaway Train fits the bill that the the video becomes an important work in a medium in which there aren't many important works. You could count like really important music videos on like you know 10 fingers like johnny cash's take on hurt and thriller and and i have to say that because of what it is responsible for um runaway train has to be an important video 
So yeah, for sure. This video, I mean, <laughs> it's weird that they have uh, pop culturally everything about them is goes back to this video now um, that they made for Runaway Train, um, which um, I'll just. Tony Cage is the director of it. He directed, uh, for those of you who watch movies, uh, American History X. He directed and shot that movie, and he also worked with Roger 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 Waters, uh, the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Uh, Johnny Cash just mentioned this became this like this is a thing where this song becomes and video becomes like bigger than them, right? Like, yeah, this is not indicative of like everything they are, but this is like. People on a runaway train, they know the video, and then they might know Soul Asylum. Is that fair to say with that? If they're yeah. if they're general, not the peruser type person, it's kind of yeah. weird that way. But and it is something we talked about in the Proclaimers episode with mm-hmm. the people think that they're a one hit wonder because they're no, they train. Yeah, they, they had many songs and albums that sold well, and many other songs after this like uh misery and just like anyone and so forth they they were um a vital band doing lots of stuff <laughs> right i think they were that the band that i think like a record company oh man that next album is gonna explode like people are gonna be and it was like oh no we just the general populace just liked them for one second you know that was the thing like because i remember ads for their follow-up being like all over tv and all this stuff and coming out and then just like yeah, kind of. Let your dim light shine is the name of that album. It's mm-hmm. the, it had misery and just like anyone on it, and it's 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 a very good record. There's lots of good stuff. Um, I saw them tour on that, and um, they're a great live band. I mean, if you came out of Minneapolis at that period, you were mm-hmm. a great live band. None of them sucked. <laughs> I mean, you know that they they cut their teeth on that scene. Gotcha. But and Dave Perner, the lead singer, songwriter, mm-hmm. etc. You know, Perner is a good writer. And I think that even divorced of this particular video, the song probably would have been a hit because it's it's a very good song. And it, it, he intended it as a song about a relationship that has fallen apart. But because it had Runaway in it, it mm-hmm. lent itself to the concept. <laughs> yeah, and the concept overtakes it because then it becomes this like striving mission of importance like like oh they're an activist band try they, they really care about this call that type of thing and the, the video was really effective i remember the video was effective to me back in the day i was 11 years old seeing it and i was like well, it kind of spooked me and i felt bad and all this stuff like these kids are you know what's going on but because oh because well, yeah. let's talk about the video here um, it is the missing children video. Um, so maybe you don't know the song, but you remember what was that video with all the missing kids? It's this one, uh, where it's like throughout, there's a story to the video, but it also, um, it's vignettes, but, uh, in the middle of it, it plays these like shows pictures and then says well, these kids have been missing since and their name. And, um, uh, in between there's these little vignettes of runaways with like, you know, having to do with prostitution, fighting at home, uh, kind of things. Some really, odd stuff but there was different versions of the video made and they tried to like localize and regionalize them to show kids that were closer in the area missing there was a uk edition of the video uh all sorts of different things one with like narration and stuff Mm. yeah yeah there's a there's a version with dave perner giving an Mm -hmm. intro and explaining what the the concept is yeah 
and and he also did um PSAs for um the Center for Missing and Exploited Children and okay. uh, they, they, they played the song in the commercials. So it became, you know, inextricably linked with, you know, missing kids. Just beyond that. And and, and weirdly, um, which you know, Dave Perner was kind of a quasi celebrity on the back of this. I mean, he had a very distinctive look. He yeah, yeah. Dated Winona Ryder for some time in the middle of the nineties, like during her reality bites era and so so he was visible. He was like in paparazzi photos and you know, he joined the uh when uh Thurston Moore assembled the kind of alt rock all-stars to be the Beatles for the movie Backbeat, like the guys playing mm-hmm. the Beatles. Uh Perner was the guy that they recruited to sing the Paul McCartney songs. Ah. It was Dave Dave Grohl was on drums. Don Fleming from Gumball was a guitarist with Thurston Moore. Uh uh Mike Mills from REM was the bass player, and Greg Dully from Afghan Wigs sang John Lennon's stuff. But Dave Perner from Silicon was right there singing McCartney's <laughs> stuff with these other guys. So he was he was a big personality in you know this this stretch of time. Yeah, he would be you know seen with Winona and recruited for those kind of projects. I always thought to me in my he always kind of looked like the alternative answer to like Axl Rose visually. Like he kind of <laughs> he had that he had that hair. He had that hair facially kind of like, oh, it's like this little cousin or something. But um, yeah, it kind of reminded me of that. But yeah, he was, yeah, he was notable. Like I couldn't tell you any other member of that band, but that lead singer like, oh yeah, Soul Asylum guy. Uh, and he was focused on this video a lot too, which, um, so the vignettes, there's a uh, child witnessing a grandfather beating and eventually killing a grandmother, flees in fear. Second one is a teenage girl pimped as a prostitute. Uh, and it's purchased by the gold man who from the first vignette. Right. Um, and then, yeah, th- there's some nasty stuff with that uh, hospital scene. A uh, small baby gets snatched uh, in one of them. Uh, and that's kind of with the things playing in there. Um, there's children playing shown throughout this because it's kids and it's kind yeah. of like a reverse, like trying to make it. Ooh, it's creepy because. It's happy stuff with kids, but this is a dark subject matter. And it's um, you mentioned the chart placements and the sales and the Grammy and everything, but it was mm-hmm. a uh, staggeringly big piece of popular culture. It the was. Time. There was parodies of it too, weren't there? Yeah, think, it, yeah. And and it didn't go away. It it was it hung around on the charts and on MTV for for months and months. MTV was not quick to pull it or take it out of rotation because, as you said they would put other pictures of kids in it. So it would be like mm-hmm. fresh versions of it. And sometimes they'd even announce, Hey, there's an updated version of runaway train running now, you know, and check in with it. And I, I, I don't remember. I think you said that you had stats on how many kids were actually found on account. of. Well, the- yeah. So uh, I want to go with this because this is kind of like a, a show that was popular at this time that uh, has placed in the top 10 a couple times in the summer of 93 at 30 is Unsolved Mysteries, which was one of my favorite shows back in the day was because it used to freak me out. And I just love that. I, I apparently love that thrill of being scared from Unsolved Mysteries and going to bed or something <laughs> that night and having it on my brain. 
and thinking of it. So when I was going through and I was researching it, uh, this I found like there's like updates, like Upsell Mysteries when you watch a rerun of something, be like yeah. update, and you're like it's like bum, 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 and you're like oh god, oh god, please let's, let's, let's like don't let it still be out there because <clears throat> whenever you watch a rerun, because here I'll share something with viewers when I'm editing or I'm writing, sometimes my audio ambiance, a lot of times Pluto TV. Which channels on Pluto TV, you ask? Well, there's the Doctor Who channel, of course. You all know that. There's the Dark Shadows channel. That's there, too. Uh, Mystery Science Theory 3000 sometimes. But a lot of times, Unsolved Mysteries is the channel. And it's always like you get to the end and you're like, please update, please update. Oh, no, guy's still out there on the loose or something like that. (laughs) So when I read these resolved cases, it plays like those updates on Unsolved Mysteries. So... Update. 26 missing children were found after being featured in the video. So if you remember, in the U.S., there were 36, I think I said, kids that were shown in these videos across the different versions. 36. So they found there's only 10 unaccounted for. But it's not all, like, happy. Um, So guitarist Dan Murphy stated in an interview in 2006 that... And many of them ended in tragedies. Like he says, some weren't the best scenarios. I met a fireman on the East Coast whose daughter was in the end of the video, and he'd been in a bitter custody battle with his wife over her. It turned out the girl hadn't run away, but was killed and buried in her backyard by her mother. And then on tour, another girl told us laughingly, you ruined my life because she saw herself on the video at her boyfriend's house and it led to be her being forced back into a bad home situation. Yeah, which which makes you wonder how the kids were selected. Um, yeah, for for the video, like obviously this is 1993. You don't have the comprehensiveness of the internet now, where you can vet this stuff a lot harder. You know, yeah, and, and also like. DNA testing is not so if there's like a murder or trying to find some DNA testing is not quite used yet or like legi- a legitimate well, research tool. This is this is when uh, compared to the OJ trial because people didn't understand what DNA testing was for the Simpson trial, but by the time the CSI is running at the beginning of the next decade, they mm-hmm. understand it now. Right. <laughs> That's true. That's true. That's so, true. Um, yeah. So uh, other one. Okay. So uh, in the UK, uh, Mark Bartley, a runaway, went missing in 1992. He was recognized in the video by a man who knew Bartley was staying in a in a tenant's house below them, but was unaware of his missing status. By the time police arrived, Bartley and the man he was living with were gone. It is unknown what happened to him after this. Um. Curtis Hunsinger, who was featured in the U.S. video, was located deceased in 2008. His convicted killer, Stephen Daniel Hash, pleaded guilty to manslaughter and, in 2009, was sentenced to 11 years in Folsom State Prison. Uh, Andrea Bowman was also featured in the U.S. video. Her adopted father, Dennis Bowman, confessed to her murder in February 2020, so just three years ago. Uh, Her remains were located later that month and positively identified via DNA testing in May 2020. Also serving two life sentences for another 1980 murder, he was sentenced to an additional 35 to 50 years for Andrea's. Um, 
the last image in all three U.S. versions of the video is that of Thomas Dean Gibson, who disappeared from Douglas County, Oregon in 1991 at the age of two. He's still missing as of February 2021. Uh, age progressed photos of him at age 18 and 21 were released in 2009 and 2012, respectively, by the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. Thomas's father, Larry Gibson, a former deputy sheriff, was convicted of second-degree manslaughter after prosecutors alleged that he accidentally killed Thomas when he shot at a stray cat in his front yard, even though no remains were ever found. Larry maintains his innocence and claims to have worked on finding Thomas since being released from prison in 1996. This case was explored on an episode of Unsolved Mysteries. I'm sorry, that's probably bad to clap about. That. <laughs> <laughs> I was just the show. Uh, yeah, the ver- bring, bring it all, bring it all together. So here's one of the craziest. Uh, the version shown in Australia showed a number of young backpacking tourists whose families were looking for them. Many of those shown in the Australian version were confirmed victims of serial killer Ivan Milat, who was arrested in 1994, not long after the Australian film clip was released. So that, yeah, that, so there was a bunch of them in Australia that were like, all serial killers. Like that guy probably saw that video and was like, shoot, (laughs) fuck soul asylum. Well, that's got to be kind of a heavy thing for the band. Obviously, they can't play shows without playing the song. Um, but th- this association for them has to be heavy. Yeah. You know, and maybe they're in a place artistically where it's like the, the song is, you know, they, they've figured it out. Right. I mean, they've been playing for so long and uh, you, you see bands talk about this. Um, you know, D- Dave Grohl was talking recently about making a set list. Mm-hmm. Like how freaking hard it is for the Foo Fighters to make a set list because he said, you know, we've got kind of like 10 songs that people want to hear that they'll kind of like riot if we don't play like, you know, ever long in all my life and stuff. So we got to do that. And then there's usually like a cover or two or something like that that we do to amuse ourselves or a deep cut. And then there's got to be the stuff from the newer record. And then like, what are the middling songs that, you know, and he's like, it's a real like pain in the ass. But he knows that there's like Everlong and certain ones are never going to come out of the set list. Right. Your Soul Asylum, Runaway Train is never going to come out of the set list. No. But it's got to be a drag, you know, right. at a certain point. It's like, and, you know, do you finish? Because it's kind of a down song to finish. Like, where do you put Runaway Train in your set if you're Soul Asylum? Uh, Especially when they have so many up songs. Either the, the first encore song or like the setup for the final and the regular set like i don't know i don't i don't properly remember where it was you know in the set when i saw them i know that they, they i know that when i saw them they played string of pearls from dim light shine last but um you know so it was probably near that it was probably near the the end but um yeah <laughs> it's it's heavy. It's a heavy bit of business to deal with, especially if you have all those associations that you carry with you. Like we found lots of kids in Australia, but they were victims of a serial killer. We found, you know, and what, what do you do? Right. Yeah. The- so soul asylum's most recent show uh, on July 21st in San Jose, California, it was in, there was, they played 17 songs and it was in the 13 slot. Gotcha. So you get, what are the last three? Now I have to, uh, um, 
The last three is uh, music in the park of 2023. So it might have been a festival. The, the last, so the last four songs were closer to the stairs, 99% uh, lately and April fool. Okay. So <laughs> kind of like an up down. <laughs> yeah. Up down. Um, so they played, oh, they played uh summer fest in Milwaukee. Um, and they had it earlier in the set. They had it at the like around the middle point at the eight spot. Um, they keep yeah. They seem to only be playing festivals, and they're yeah. It's somewhere in the middle of the set. So it's either the beginning of the middle, the end of the middle, the in the middle. They played Carb Day this year. Oh, that's right. They did. Yep. It was in the eleven spot of fourteen songs. They okay, so here's a regular show from the oh no, that's not maybe they opened for somebody. It was the second to last song, uh, with just like anyone being the closer. That that's a hell of a closer for a for band. Very upbeat, mm-hmm. like rocking song. Uh, Claire Danes was in the video for that. Okay. <laughs> okay, so there here's a regular show where they they're uh, obviously the headliners back in Minnesota, in Minneapolis. Um, it's in the middle of the set. Um. Yeah. So and, so they've kind of figured it yeah. out, right? Like based on the audience that they're playing. If they're playing like their audience, they kind of throw it in the middle. If they're playing like the festival crowd, it's tucked near the end to let you know that show's almost over, right? Yeah. Right. <laughs> think the science of set lists. All good. But, I, I do love. There's that. Yeah. See, have you seen the um not as best concert doc, but uh, the shine of light that a Scorsese one with the Rolling Stones, oh, yeah. and he sits helping Mick Jagger write the set list. Like I, I love that scene. Yeah, the only Scorsese movie that doesn't have "Give Me Shelter" in it. Right, <laughs> that's true. That's funny. That yeah, is funny. But, but that, it, that again, with you know, the the Stones more than Soul Asylum, and like, how the hell do you make a set list? That play, like, I mean, if you're especially if you're not doing like a multi night stop, right? Like, yeah, yeah. There's, I mean, I remember like it's funny because like. Like so, Pearl Jam back like uh, early 2010s or so, they did like a three night stop in Philadelphia or something, mm-hmm. and it was just amazing what they played over three nights. So like, there was no repeat. I think there was very minimal repeats and stuff. And I saw a guy who only went to like one night, and he was like bitching about it. It was like he's like they didn't play the hits, man. They didn't play. I'm like you saw incredible stuff, dude, that they don't play very often, or it's hard. It's like, what are you doing, like? You you don't understand Pearl Jam then that what you know like you were just the casual guy going to the show but it's a three night stop like yeah ah, like I but don't they know. they have been since you know 1993 or so doggedly almost almost dogmatically and doggedly doing the opposite of what their audience wants them to do yeah like um I was just reading something recently that had to do with the Dave. Abrizi, how you say it? The tremor that uh, should have been inducted with him in the Rock and Roll Hall. Oh thing. yeah, yeah. That, that whole story. But he told he related a story in an interview about um, producer Brendan O'Brien saying, you know, talking about daughter, mm-hmm. which I believe is on um, versus versus yeah, and um, about how it was a good lead single. And he said, as soon as he said that, like. Eddie and Jeff, like their heads just dropped. And 
is like, why is it a bad thing to say something's a good lead single? You know, we're going to have a goddamn lead single. Yeah, we have a marketing plan, regardless of what you guys like. Yeah, and it's like, you you know, it was just one of those things. They're so doggedly, like, you know, not that we'll, we'll, we'll take the millions of dollars from the albums and the tours and stuff. But, you know, we don't want to look like we're trying. To- right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, they they're freaking plan here was terrible with the well they're taking the recent the tour like getting tickets for that where they're like we're we're gonna go on live nation but we've got a way to combat the problem and it only made it worse like if you like is this lottery system with a number it's like if if you really want to get tickets get the hell online when it goes on sale that's all you can do like you shouldn't uh, like if that important to you make the time to buy the tickets like we live in a we live in a society. Well, we live in a world where it's it's not like I gotta call in sick for work to go buy tickets. Yeah, like you can take five minutes, pull out your phone, get the tickets. Like, yeah, but is isn't it so funny that in, in a year where there's been all these ticket disasters from Springsteen to Taylor Swift, which wasn't her fault, to yeah. Pearl Jam, that it was the cure. It was Robert Smith like chastising Ticketmaster in public that. Right, their tour so that they didn't have the problems that yeah anyone else did all he had to do was speak up he's like the charges are ridiculous you're making it so people can't see the show fix this shit Mm -hmm. and they did so obviously it can be fixed right but you know the the cure got i I mean hell it was it was something like the average ticket price dropped by 10 or more bucks and they still made the most money they've ever made Mm -hmm. on that tour it's it's hilarious but now going with with soul asylum you know they're still obviously out there playing this is 20 20 years hence 30 years hence i mean and they're still playing they're still a a vital band making records drawing crowds participating in festivals and stuff you know they're more so than acts that have come since (laughs) right right you know so I don't know. I don't know. Did this song help keep them in the consciousness? Yeah, I'm sure it did because the song, in a way, never went away. It's always on alternative or classic rock right. station. You find it. WTTS plays it regularly. Yep. You find it in your grocery store. <laughs> yeah. Find it in your grocery store. I mean, it's always, someone's always ponying up to add it to a TV show or a movie or something like that. Like, it's always there. Um, always a notable footnote in the you know the wave of 90s music the wave of, of like alternative nation like all sorts of stuff yeah. so it's like always always gonna go to be there so i um i don't want to spoil anything for anyone and i myself am not through the second season but um with respect to deployment of 90s music yellow jackets mm-hmm. time um I'm, I'm sort of surprised this hasn't turned up yet but ah. <laughs> But it, it, it Brandon, have you watched it? No, I have not. It's been highly recommended to me, but I have not caught up yeah. with Yellow Jackets. I'll, I'll throw my voice on that too. But um, in terms of their their use of of music of the era, um, it's it's pretty great. And so you know, it's one of those things where I would not be surprised. But they they've got a pretty amazing mix of stuff. Um, That's right. Yeah, I've heard that for sure. So yeah, so so I I wouldn't be surprised to see this continue to show up in soundtracks and things that are trying to strike a era specific note, especially since we're probably 
we're we're in a good uh, influx of people probably doing '90s nostalgia movies. Oh yeah, like you know, we're probably in that groove pretty soon. <laughs> yep. Uh, you know, whenever Stranger Things gets its final season going, that's going to be the the end of the '80s stuff, and we'll be well into '90s nostalgia. Yeah, I, I think it's already started a little bit with uh, some fashion stuff and everything. I've noticed like, you know, flannel and tights under shorts and stuff creeping back in. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All the kids have chucks. <laughs> yep. They're not comfortable. Uh, <laughs> never were, man. Never were. Never were. <laughs> I would like my pants back, my baggier jeans with the slight bell bottoms on them. Oh, I love okay. those. I love those. Um. I like stripes down the side stuff. Yeah, there we go. I promise not to wear a wallet chain again, though. No no swingers era for uh... no. Oh my gosh, swingers. Oh gosh, I will. That is this. That is like if people. I'm off topic, but that's fine. But if people, (laughs) my like, I can tell you one a, a movie that really nails the Los Angeles experience living there and try to work the entertainment industry. Swingers has it down. Like that was my. That was very close to what I like life. I was living there. I was like, it's it's oddly specific, and it checks out. And I kind of lived around those neighborhoods too. But um, yeah, crazy, crazy. But that's a story for another day. When I do a swingers episode, summer of what ninety five was that swingers? Did that come? 95, in? Yeah, ninety five or ninety six. It might have been ninety six. Yep, yep, summer of ninety six. So when that happens, I'll be all about the swingers. So yeah, all right, uh, Troy, that wraps you up. For the summer of 93 at 30. Uh, happy to have you back for another run at this series. Um, always like your intellect, and you were here for three of them. So very, very awesome. So, where can people keep up with you until your inevitable return to this show? <laughs> I'm executive editor at the Saturday Evening Post, so SaturdayEveningPost.com. And you can find me on various strata of social media, usually at Troy Brownfield. And uh, please check out um tidal wave productions uh upcoming comic book miniseries uh legend of isis the new kingdom which i am writer on so all right cool uh and i'm on twitter and instagram at brandon 4 khd uhd written work on why so blue.com come back monday as aaron scott and i will be discussing searching for bobby fisher the secret garden hearts and souls and jason goes to hell the final friday as the summer of 93 at 30 continues. It's the summer of 93 at 30. Thank you for listening. The Brandon Peters Show is a Creative Zombie Studios production. Produced by Brad Shoemaker and Brandon Peters. Written and edited by Brandon Peters. Announcer vocals by Jessica Alsman. Theme song by Metavari. Web design and show art by Brad Shoemaker with Brandon Peters. All music and clips featured in the episode are property of their respective studios and no infringement is intended. The summer of and news themes by Press Maxson. Additional information on this and other episodes at thebrandonpetersshow.com. For any inquiries, press opportunities, or sponsorship, contact mail at thebrandonpetershow.com. The show is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere podcasts are found.